This is Humans of Gaming, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hello and welcome to the Humans of Gaming podcast. I'm Drew Dixon. I'm your host, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Chris Gwaltney. Hey, Chris. What up? Hey, good to be here. Yeah. So we're talking to. We have a special guest, and it's kind of. I, I guess I'll go ahead and get like the fanboy stuff out of the way. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite game designers, I think personally. Just I find his games personally really interesting and satisfying. Uh, and frustrating, and that's Bennett Foddy. Hey, Bennett. Hey. How are you? I'm I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, so people would know you from uh, the first big game that you know. I think a lot of people are familiar with probably would be Quop. Uh, it was kind of uh, kind of has like this <laughs> cult following. I don't know if that's not the right term. Just people are interested in that game. I think uh, broadly. Um, and then, of course, uh, you worked on Sports Friends. You did Super Pole Riders, and mm-hmm. most recently, uh, Getting Over It. You've done a ton of like flash games, I guess, right? Um, what, yeah, what, lots of little, lots of little things. Mainly, I think mainly browser games and also kind of live event games. You know, party games, right? Know, from, from that whole scene. So, Sports Friends is more like a, an emblem of a like larger body of, of, of work I did in that vein. Yeah, yeah. What what were some examples of, of some of the party games you've done? Uh, it's Bennett Foddy's Speed Chess, which was a 16-player real-time chess game where you don't have to wait, you just move whenever you want to. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my nightmare. Uh, of course, like, I, I mean, what happened was, I guess, uh, starting with Co-op, uh, I, I got involved in uh, Baby Castles, the underground sort of gallery and event space uh, in New York. Um and I started making games for that situation. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the original Pole Riders was one of them. Um, I, I we had some some modifications of my other games. So with Doug Wilson, I made a game called Mega Gurp, which is a modification of my rock climbing game Gurp, mm-hmm. except that you play it using a, a set of four DDR uh, dance mats uh-huh. <laughs> uh, with, with a letter on each on each button on the on the dance mat. So you're trying to like use your whole body to 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 touch a keyboard essentially. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we were just doing all those sorts of things for for uh, you know I was doing that collaboratively with friends for for I don't know a number of years, uh, and then we decided to kind of um, bring bring a few of those games together into Sports Friends. That's how that happened. So it really, is the kind of other pillar of my work is is multiplayer games. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask if that's something that sort of drives what you do, because um, even like Quop, which obviously you can play single player, I think um, most people, I would guess, most people play it with their friends, even if they're playing single player, like watch how crazy this is or how difficult this is. Uh, Is that something that drives you to make games that are, you know, great for kind of communal spaces? Yeah. I mean, I think it was the, that, uh, Syed and Kunal, who started Baby Castles, saw something like that in Quop. That's why they were really keen to be able to take it and and present it in that context, in that kind of live social context. Yeah. And, you know, when I would go and and see people playing the game and, and watching each other playing the game and kind of cheering and so on in that context made me think, you know, there is a there is a way 
uh, although it's sort of accidental in the case of Quop, um, you, you can design for those kinds of, of crowd dynamics for that kind of spectacle deliberately if you, if you want to. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's, it's sort of essential if you're designing uh, multiplayer games for a social space, it's really a kind of essential quality. And I spent quite some time thinking about it when I was making my multiplayer games. And I think now it's basically a kind of a thread that, that is there in my single player games as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. So, and most recently, the most recent uh, example of that would be Getting Over It, which you just released not too long ago. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask some questions about that, but before I do, I just heard something and I want to ask you about it because I thought it was funny. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, but I don't, I don't like follow, there's nobody on Twitter really I follow <laughs> who I like follow their every tweet, but, mm-hmm. but I heard, and I haven't seen this, but somebody told me that during the Olympics, you post pictures of athletes crying. Is this true? Oh yeah, it is. True. Yeah. <laughs> So is it like crying? Yeah, is it crying like in jubilation or mostly crying when they failed to get the gold medal or whatever? I, I, I like both. I went, I went kind of Olympics crazy for the 2012 Olympics, and you know, in, in England they do a really, it's very, it's unlike America, they do a, a very good job of uh, broadcasting the Olympics, and they have yeah. every single event. <laughs> Zing. You know, you can, <laughs> you can see every moment of every event. You don't. There's no kind of weird bullshit cable subscription required or anything like that yeah you you just basically go to the website you get like a perfect stream it's not like the nbc i was trying to watch the winter olympics the nbc stream it's like a puzzle to try to figure out which is going to be the stream that has the actual like event everybody wants to see Mm -hmm. it's just really really weird but in england it was easy so i i I went uh you know I, i just really went deep and watched almost every olympic event and i just found myself like captivated by these by these really uh, emotional moments and I, you know that's something I've, I've definitely experienced before in the olympics like uh there there are some really famous uh in at least in each country there are these famous moments where where some kind of terrible defeat happened or some glorious victory and someone's overcome with emotion and i think i sort of feel like anybody who practices a sport for four years and then travels around the world uh to compete at the top level against all of these people that probably know really well and in front of like a billion spectators, they're feeling more intensely about games than, than anybody else ever will. Right. So there's a kind of beauty in, in, in the intensity of, of feeling and whether it's like uh, they, they spend all this time training and then they go uh, to do like a downhill skiing and they come out of their binding just as soon as they push out of the blocks and then that's it for four years. Like there's a beauty in, in that, those really kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the, the unfairness of those mm. situations. There's people who let themselves down, especially in kind of skill-based things like diving or figure skating. I really love that kind of look on their face. Like they've just, they, they can't believe that they choked. It's kind of a beautiful one. Yeah. But I also, I mean, I also like in sports when people are just overcome with, with sort of uh, elation as well. Like I remember watching, uh, I guess it was Ichiro. Uh, is that right? Ichiro Suzuki. It's like one of the Yankees uh, pitchers mm-hmm. yeah. uh, was closing out the World Series and got to be like, got to pitch the final ball. And I don't even think there was that much hanging on it, mm-hmm. but just the look on his face, like before and after he threw it, 
it's just like I, I find myself moved by that. It's like it's like crying at weddings or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do see a lot more tears of of frustration and 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 sadness in the Olympics than in, of happiness. I think <laughs> if you really right. if you really look, yeah. not so much in the finals. You have to look in the heats. Yeah, uh, but it's really and there's just interesting dynamics to it. You know, Stephen Lavelle pointed out to me that in the in the synchronized diving in the in the Olympics, it's always the case that one of the two divers is crying and the other one is kind of stoically like hugging them. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to watch. You can kind of predict for yourself who's going to cry here, who's going to be the rock. Yeah, one of them has to be the rock. Totally. So like, so when most people are watching the Olympics, they're like, I wonder who's going to win and you know, who's going to pull out that clutch performance. And you're going like, this one's a crier. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one's a weeper for sure. <laughs> so, so it's just, I just like intense, I just like intense human drama. That's yeah, the thing yeah. that, I, that I get out of sport. And, and I like, it's the thing that's kind of missing in video games a lot of the time as well. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that I'm jealous of as a, as a game designer looking at sports. Well, well that's what I was going to ask is, uh, do you have any pictures of people playing your games and crying? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I've been, people sent me some things like, uh, a broken mouse, uh, a desk with like a punch hole in it, like something <laughs> punch their desk. Jeez. I think that's, uh, I think that's fake though. I don't, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised. I felt frustrated playing a game, but I never have wanted to punch a hole in my desk. But you've certainly seen a lot of people like, like that's kind of what getting over it is all about. Like it's about it is. eliciting I mean, intense emotions from players to a degree, right? Right, right. But I mean, I think a, I think a video game, you know, the most I can hope for in terms of sincere emotion is that you might scream, or you know, you mm-hmm. might you might have to walk away, mm-hmm. uh, or you might you might rage quit and uninstall the game. Yeah. If I can get you to that extent, then I then I just feel like that's a moment that you won't forget from from a game right most games just do not take you to that level yeah multiplayer games sometimes like you'd be you can have people trolling you in counter-strike or beating you over and over again Mm -hmm. that's just really like a that's just to say that human beings can make you upset i mean that's not interesting right right? as (laughs) a designer uh that's that's one of the reasons why it's interesting to make multiplayer games is you can harness that Mm -hmm. but but as a designer, I want I want it to come from me in a way. I want I want your emotion to kind of flow from choices that I make, <laughs> and, yeah. and and I want you to be able to attribute them to me, uh, you know. And and so, if I want to do that, I've got to do that in the single player space. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just thinking as you said that the closest thing that I could think of where I've had that kind of experience in a multiplayer context would be like um, Daisy when Daisy first came out. I played that a good bit. And mm-hmm. I remember I had this moment where I, um, like, I worked really hard to get my bearings in that game and, like, figure out how to survive and, and get supplies. And, you know, I finally got to where I wasn't terrible at it, and I had gotten a lot of great supplies and things. And um, I saved this guy and his friend, uh, bandaged them up and, like, saved them in this, like, key moment and they ended up turning on me and shooting me and stealing all my stuff. Uh, yeah, and it was just so like, like I couldn't even be angry. It was just like, like this is dramatic, but like just crushing, you know. Uh, yeah. And I think 
um, yeah, I think that's like one of the few gay moments like I won't forget. But I think you're right. That's pretty rare to have those kind of experiences in games. Um, I think you you honestly like I I think if a game gets associated with that kind of feeling a lot of the time uh, people reject it in a in a Mm -hmm. multiplayer space. Yeah, right. Like the classic example would be Monopoly. Yeah, uh, uh-huh. how many people? How many people have had their parents throw the Monopoly board away <laughs> uh, yeah. because it was generating too many fights? Right. And you know, we we view it as a failing in a multiplayer game because we want we want the time we spend with other people to be kind of friendly and and positive. Um, but we don't. I mean, I don't think we necessarily want that from from the artwork or you know from from the media that we that we consume. We don't have. It would be sad if if every single uh, movie you watched had to be a kind of like a good vibe pro social kind of thing that you could take somebody on a date to. That would be, that would be to cut away like 80% of the good movies. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I just think that, that this is one of the things that makes multiplayer and single player very different. Mm-hmm. Why do you think uh, we're, even though the social dynamics can really be the same between them as well in some, in some yeah, ways. Why do you think we're less accepting of that type of experience in interactive media like video games than we are with films or books or other media? Do you think we are? I mean, I, I think if we go back to the 70s and 80s, you know, give you any popular video game from the 1980s. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And and they're all kind of aversively frustrating. Uh-huh. And that's a new trend, all too, in game design these days. Totally. Too, of, like, making things yeah. super hard and... Thanks, Dark Souls. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... I just think it's a fashion, right? I mean, I think that tastes come in, in and go in fashions. Like, in the, the 90s... You got you got music with this real kind of uh, dark emo sort of vibe about mm-hmm. it. Uh, that that's just really become, like it's hitting the mainstream and becoming super super popular. In the in the sixties, you've got all this kind of hippie music with like uh, Buddhism and and uh, and compassion and care for your fellow man. And I think that that art, you know, at its best, it picks up something of the of the kind of current zeitgeist. And I, you know, the question would be. What is it about our society right now that's bringing uh, frustrating experiences back into mm-hmm. into the kind of uh, into, into interest in a way that that they had kind of vanished for a good twenty years? Yeah, I don't know. I have some Me guesses, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, I I think it's easy to sort of like think of some of the political climate, like in the United States, or. Um, or even in other places, like in the UK, with like Brexit and things, and think right, but 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 I mean, Demon Souls is two thousand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that trend right? so, obviously so came we, way before or, or started. Yeah, we can't we can't you know pin it on Donald Trump <laughs> or, or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, we can if we want to, but yeah, we, anybody can find a way to do that, guaranteed. I mean, I, I I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think it might be. Um, that is, it, you know, it doesn't have to be like a political trend. It could be, for example, that that a certain style of technology is now suffusing our every everyday sort of moment to moment experience. One of the things that's happened uh, just before Demon Souls came out is the popularization of the modern smartphone. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So suddenly, we the the smartphone and the app store kind of establishes this really intense norm that uh, that technology can and should be friendly. It should be can and should be uh, uh, intuitive mm-hmm. and easy and smooth and and frustration free. 
And I think though it was around that time that kind of web technologies also started to gain those characteristics, something that they've been shooting at for a while, sort of unsuccessfully, and sort of state of the art of, of interface design and software design and all of those sorts of things uh, started to advance to the point where your experience with technology becomes incredibly smooth around that time. And it might just be that uh, these things come in waves of, of kind of correction and, and counter-correction and over-correction and so on. That's how, that's how waves happen in fashion. Mm-hmm. And so as, as your day, daily life on a computer becomes more and more smooth and less and less full of frustration, it's a flavor that you start to miss mm-hmm. in your computing experience. Whereas, you know, you, you ask me if I'm like an internet user circa 1995, the thought of like, hey, I've got a video game that's really hard to use. You'd be like, what? <laughs> Why? Yeah. yeah. The rest of my day is hard. Like, I don't want to keep doing that. Uh-huh. It's hard to get my modem to connect down the phone line <laughs> while my parents are not on the other end of the phone to to some 2400 board modem, you know? Yeah. Like, everything yeah. about this is hard. It doesn't need to be mm-hmm. made more hard. Yeah. Uh, so, I think, yeah, you can definitely see how the conditions for this sort of style of work don't appear until... Uh, second decade of the millennium. Mm-hmm. And I think too, there's, I mean, there's something to be said probably for the ga- games themselves prior to like Demon's Souls or whatever else that came out uh, that was like upping the ante on being frustrating um, or difficult. Um, yeah, sure, for sure. Like, we got like uh, an Anthropic games and we got uh, Messoff's games like Punishment oh, yeah, and yeah. Punishment 2. Uh-huh. And, but I was just thinking yeah, like a lot of like a, the, a- the big AAA stuff like the trend in game design prior to a lot of that was like hold the player's hand and make it easy and like yeah. give them a really uh, like clear step-by-step progression where they always feel like they're getting better and they, and, and it's not super hard at the beginning. Like anybody can pick it up and, and uh, at least if you've played some video games before uh, and, and kind of have some success. Um, so I think, you know, bucking against that trend is, you know, is is to an extent at the time probably was sort of innovative to a degree, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that, that the, that's why these things run in waves, right? I mm-hmm. mean, people get bored of any, any given flavor. And if you run the ball downfield too much with things like, uh, I would hesitate to ever say dumbing down, but in terms of making the experience more friendly and less frustrating. Yeah. Uh, there's bound to be some interest in the in like it creates a kind of a negative space mm-hmm. like a, a vacuum for for other kinds of experiences and you wouldn't say now as much as there is interest in in experiences that are more frustrating uh, from not not just my games but but I would think like you know PUBG would be a great example obviously the Souls games um, you know maybe you know, even 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 given that there is this kind of wave of interest it's still in the minority right you'd still say that overwhelmingly AAA games are on the smooth yeah. side totally yeah yeah so um i want to get into your personal life soon here and like ask you kind of where you grew up and all that kind of stuff but i do want to talk a little bit about getting over it and i want to frame it for our listeners mm-hmm. because if you haven't played it you won't you may not get it but so um I'll probably frame, frame, well, maybe I should just ask you, how would you frame getting over it for someone who hasn't played it? It's a, it's a strange, it's a strange little hybrid piece. Uh, on its surface, it's a tribute game to a, uh, to a freeware game from 2002 called Sexy Hiking, 
sexy hiking as a game, <laughs> sort of as a as a B game. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a game. Uh, on its surface, it's about uh, a guy who who goes hiking by dragging himself around with a hammer, mm-hmm. and you try to try to get like up some some sort of little levels, some mountains. The the, the game is a, a B game. In, and I talk about this a bit in 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 uh, getting over it. It's like it's it's all sort of like secondhand assets, you know, like borrowed bits of music from other games or from TV shows. It's it's you know it's like secondhand sprites, uh, and it's like assembled. It's like an assemblage or a collage of of uh, of other people's work. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of fascinated by that game, or I grew fascinated with it after teaching it in a class at NYU. Uh, you know, some many years after that, after it came yeah. out. And uh, I started to think about what it would mean to make for me to make a homage to that game or a, a game about that game. Mm-hmm. So I, I borrow the kind of basic idea of the mechanic. My game is a physics game about dragging yourself up a hill with a with a hammer. But the the kind of the content of the game is like a there's like a um, beginner's guide inspired uh voiceover track that i that i that i give voice to that is like exploring what it means this kind of concept of what it means to to make a game about another game yeah and so it's it's simultaneously a kind of a massacre difficult game Mm -hmm. like a a physics game that's that's in the same vein as co-op it's like a sequel to co-op in some sort of way but it's uh as well as that it's 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 like a uh, a, a piece of meta narrative about about the nature of games as art, I suppose. Yeah, and also kind of a like I think at least if you play it just a little bit, you'll probably think this is a game about dealing with failure, right? I mean, like right. like learning to deal with the fact that you failed massively because. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the other side of it. So I open up the game by saying this is a meditation on frustration, right, right. on the feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I like what you said earlier in the podcast when you said you know you want players to 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 look to you as the source <laughs> of their frustration. Like, right. like this was something you built that is is frustrating them, and it's meticulously like one of the things I think is really interesting about it is it's meticulously designed to where uh, if you make a mistake, sometimes a seemingly small mistake, it can send you back to the very beginning, the very foot of this mountain that you're climbing with a, a hammer. Um, yep. and, um, and you, and you even say your voiceover at one point, you, you chime in and say, um, don't worry, like I'll, don't worry about saving. I'm going to save your progress all the time, even your failures. So <laughs> yeah, there's no this. So this is a game with no checkpoints. Yeah, it's one colossal mountain, and it offers you many opportunities to fall all the way from the top of the mountain all the way down to the bottom. Yeah. Did you? So that was a decision I made very, very early on. Like that's like one of the kind of core uh, elements of the design is that yeah, it's that sense of like never being safe with the progress that you've made. Yeah. Sounds like my life. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh. Did you ha- have any idea that this that it would be like when you made it? Do you have any idea that it would become kind of this um, this thing that you know people were compiling their failure videos and and you know c- kind of became a phenomenon on Twitch of like people sharing their 
their most epic failures. Um, did you have any idea that would be a, a, a byproduct of this game that you made? No, I mean, I, did, I not. I mean, I definitely didn't. I, I suppose, you know, relating to what I was saying before, I, I think that that sort of designing for spectacle is just a thing I do by default now through my history of of making uh, uh, multiplayer games, uh, especially and showing showing multiplayer games in in public in in festivals and parties and so on. So it's sort of there as part of my design practice to set that up as a possibility. Mm-hmm. But I was pretty sure that it was too unfriendly to to gain more than a kind of a small niche audience. I, th- I thought that there would be some speedrunners who would be interested. Yeah. Uh, I thought there would be some kind of massacre fans who were interested. But I, I really thought like a very, very small uh, niche in the market. Yeah. So what's that been like seeing it kind of, um, yeah, like t- find it's sort of like this um, – kind of blow up on on twitch and things what, what's th- that been like seeing that happen I mean, it's gratifying but it's it's not an alien feeling to me of course because mm-hmm. you know out of nowhere in 2010 quap suddenly blew up virally yeah uh and in in like in the first the first time that happens to you it's it's sort of um it feels it's difficult to get a, a handle on how to feel about it, right? Because you're you're not expecting you're not expecting a, a this sort of reaction. You don't necessarily understand why people are reacting that way. You're not sure where it's going to end mm-hmm. as well, and it becomes kind of all consuming to watch people reacting to it and try to figure out where on the sort of interest curve you are and and try to to try to understand you know what's happened and how you should talk about it. And I, I guess it felt bit more familiar this time being the second time around but i mean having said that you wouldn't expect to have three viral hits in your in your life so that's probably yeah it. yeah so you yeah <laughs> you said earlier that you know you kind of intended it as a reflection on on game design itself like um what exactly were you hoping to communicate to players through the game about about making you know making a thing making a game making a piece of art. I think that a lot of what I'm doing in that game is driven by a kind of two-sided sense of dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, I feel I, I was, I was, I was sort of feeling a kind of creeping. Um, I, I've been complaining, I suppose, for many years about uh, my mm-hmm. colleagues in indie games and you know people that i that i just whose, whose games i admire and also my students sort of disappearing or anonymizing their work so that, it, that you know you're, it's not really clear to the player who has yeah. made it right so there's a long history of this dating back to the 70s in fact why do you um, think that is that people have done that it's, I can only offer speculation and you can't really uh, having you know I wasn't sure. there at the at the dawn of the industry but but thinking about it I think part of it is that it's uh, in you know it's a uh, for a lot of the important influential games uh, we're coming out of Japan and it's a it's a different corporate environment there uh, and you know those are some of the most anonymized games in history mm-hmm. um, they are often if there are credits at all, the credits are pseudonymous. Um, 
And you can't, like, there's a lot of very famous old Japanese arcade games and console games where it's just, at least for an English speaker, it's impossible to go and research and find out who made them, right? right? And I, I think that that kind of sets up a, a culture. And, uh, you know, there was this, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of different things going on in America at the same time. If you look at kind of early days of, of Atari, there's a lot of IP theft that's kind of part of it that may, probably makes people less uh, interested in signing their work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the early days, they're viewing it much more as kind of an engineering challenge than a creative art. So if it's, if it's engineering rather than artwork, again, you're less li- likely to sign it. And I think that kind of in, informs that there was a lot of work done under contract where you were explicitly forbidden from using your, right. your name. Anyway, whatever the, the, the reason is, you know, by the time we get to sort of indie games, mid 2000s, there is this habit that people have of, you know, you, you either set up a, a real or imaginary LLC and, and then that is the name of the of the, the, the entity that made the game. That's what comes up when you start the game. There's like a logo and, you know, I'm not against that when it's made by a team because, you know, then it's like it's all about not having one person take credit for other people's work. That's yeah. fine. Uh, but there's also this huge practice of people making games you know, by themselves or with one other person. And then it's like it becomes very strange because it's the only creative art form where people's names are su- suppressed to this extent. And I guess, you know, so I, I had been kind of um, – bothered by this for some time and uh, you know i think there was a kind of related thing in my mind which is that sometimes when you make a video game these days you have interactions with the players that indicate that they don't realize that games are made by human beings Mm -hmm. right so uh, i get emails addressed to the team um or like sometimes tech support things are very angry like you know, why can't you do X when X is like a very big technical yeah, task and right. just put some engineers on it, you know, it's like, no, it's just, it's just me. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it was interesting to me that, that, that people don't get that. And I think it's, I couldn't help but feeling like, you know, as, as, as designers, we have to take some responsibility for that. The reason that they don't, that the players generally don't see any difference between the entity that made Far Cry and, uh, or, or, Grand Theft Auto and the entity that made uh, getting over it with Bennett Foddy is that we deliberately obscure that, right? There's this idea that yeah. if I, if people know this is made by one person, they won't want to buy mm-hmm. it, right? So I've got, to, I've got to try to obscure it for commercial reasons as well. Also, maybe I'm embarrassed to use my name. Um, and as a result, the players don't know and don't care who the human being is who, who made the game. You know, I, I had some history uh, as a musician briefly in my life where it was so far the other way, right? Like if you're a pop musician, yeah. um, all it, like people come to your shows wearing clothes that they went and bought after your last show so they can be dressed up <laughs> yeah. like you, uh-huh. mm-hmm. right? And they're, you know, they're cutting their hair the same way and this is kind of like, they really know that it's human beings making mm-hmm. the songs. It's like really central to the experience of, of absorbing music in a way. And so it was just jarring. It was like jarring to have these conversations with, with players for me, where it was, there was this assumption that, that I was, that I was a corporate entity. Yeah. Uh, and it, I, I guess I, it also makes me feel like, um, there's this whole dimension of, of work in independent games. And I think also in, in big commercial games 
that is invisible if you don't think about the human beings who make mm-hmm. it, right? It's not, it's not that I think that you have to know what I was trying to do with my game to be able to, to enjoy it uh, on its own merits as a piece of art. I, I don't think that. It's not about authorial intent or anything like that. It's just about if you don't think that there, was, there, there could have been authorial intent if you don't think that there could be something more like deeper going on in a video game then the only things that you could be concerned with are whether or not they're fun whether or not it's a kind of a uh, successfully engineered piece of software that's designed to make you feel a sense of fun while you're playing it and i don't come at games that way i don't think that is a big enough basket to contain all the things that i like about games and what i want is to have players who are uh, sensitive to the same range of of, um, of valuable things that I see in the games and that I try to put into my own games. Right. And so all of that is just to say that I, I think that this problem of whether or not you sign your work, whether or not people can tell that you are, uh, that there is a human being behind a piece of work feeds into the whole value system around the entire creative form and whether or not different aesthetics are, are, are valued to the player and to the, into into your fellow designers. And, um, like the, the, it sets up the whole, uh, sort of the, the, the whole aesthetic value system for the entire pursuit of making and playing games. So, um, that was, it was just something that had been bothering me for a long time. And I kind of wanted to make a a game that was a position piece Mm. on that. That's fascinating to me because, you know, we were just talking before the show about um, about that sort of being one of our goals with this podcast is like we want people to realize because, you know, we mentioned like it's a problem in gamer nerd culture uh, where, uh, you know, we I think like people lose their minds over the fact that like whatever game that they're into doesn't have a multiplayer mode. Um not realizing that this game was made by like one, maybe three people um, and like just inserting an online multiplayer mode is incredibly like time consuming and difficult for a team of that size, um, you know? And, and, and so we want people who listen to this podcast to sort of see like the, yeah, the, the people who make what well, the games that we play are, are human beings with, you know, with thoughts and fears and, and concerns and, and, um, and passions, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I really like, I really dig that about, about, uh, about getting over it that, um, yeah, just the fact that like you put your name in the, in the title of it and, and sort of position the game from the very beginning of like, this is something I made that you have to sort of reckon with, uh, even if it's uncomfortable yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean that putting, obviously putting my name in is, is how I frame that, sure. that statement. You know, the first time I put my name on a game was with my chess game, Bennett Foddy's Speed uh-huh. Chess. That was, at that stage, just, it was just a joke, right? Like, it was a joke, like, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri or something like that, right? I mean, right. it's basically, um, like, I'm pretending I'm some super famous game designer or something like that, and it just seemed funny. Yeah, sure. And, uh, but, but it got me, I mean, it's one of the things that got me thinking about this, right? It got me, it got me to thinking about, you know, why shouldn't we put our names there? And and why is it that people don't want to do that? And I really, you know, I, I really lay this at least equally at the foot of, of designers, this problem, 
it's not it's not something that I would pin on the on the players. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, right, right. I think I think if you want to if you want people to care about the human dimension of your work, you have to indicate to them that it's there. You have to at least at least at minimum not go out of your way to anonymize your work, not not go out of your way to dehumanize your mm-hmm. work. And we shouldn't be uh, terribly shocked if we are dehumanized by our audience when right. we've gone to enormous lengths to, to dehumanize the, the games themselves. I think there's this pull toward, you know, it's funny you were mentioning earlier about, you know, tech support stuff. And this has become very real to me recently because I've been doing some part-time support stuff with a, a good friend of mine. He created a plugin and he's been the guy, like he's the only guy that does it. And mm-hmm. I think there's always this pull towards like, oh, we have to be very professional and we have to have like our our form responses and all of that stuff, I think inevitably dehumanizes the organization, you know, and as you grow and grow and grow and you have more and more like form letter responses, um, you are training your consumers to see you less as human is just more as like bots or something like that. So I think that's, I mean, I think, I think all of us uh, have this relationship to big corporations, right? Cause giant corporations, whatever they may be, have a way of dehumanizing us as consumers as well. And we, I think most of us have had some kind of interaction with a, with a computer company that where their technology is not working or with a utility company where they're, they've charged you the wrong amount or something like that. You're yelling at some person who's, who's like, <laughs> Mm -hmm. the phones and that's so much like a a part of of our experience and i I think it's really easy to kind of slip into that mode but it's also really easy to disrupt it i mean and you know i've found in in answering my tech support email sometimes i have to say to somebody look i can't fix this tech support problem (laughs) like it's it's too hard I, i i don't have enough data uh but you know here's what i try i really have tried and I've, I've had customers who are so, who, who came at me so angrily and so much in that mode of like yell at mm-hmm. a corporation. And the second they get that email back, they're like, oh my God, thank you so much for emailing. <laughs> totally. And of course, it's fine that you couldn't fix it. And no, I won't seek a refund. I was really glad for the time that I've had with this. Yeah. You know, I'll try it on a different computer. You know, it's, it's, um, it's amazing how people will just, switch that how easy it is to get people back into that humanizing mode right and i you know i i think to be to be even uh to go even a little further in in fairness to the to the player base i think that sometimes the relationship between developers and and players becomes so toxic that game designers can dehumanize the customers in some ways as well before the before the game is even launched in the Mm -hmm. design of it uh, and you know, it's, it's, it can become a little bit of a, of a kind of a hostile or combative default situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, it's why it felt exciting to me to, to kind of get into this space. So I declare an intention to hurt the player with my game. <laughs> But what actually happens in the game is that as you go further through it, as you get towards the end of it, uh, my my dialogue, my voiceover becomes more and more intimate mm-hmm. with the player. And you know, you I'll can never experience that. But it, it felt <laughs> <right>. <laughs> it goes. It's like as you get further and further, it, it gets less uh, formal, and then it it goes into into sort of free verse, 
And then I start to talk about the kind of overlap between my personal tastes and the players' tastes and how they've kind of demonstrated similarity to me by by playing this far mm. in the game. And then as I get really close to the end, you know, I'm 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 leaning right in on the the mic, like I'm getting really close and being like, "Thank you so much for playing this game so far. Like, I really appreciate it." Right, mm. and then it's like. I don't know. It's like, it felt like such an interesting transgressive space yeah. to be like getting up in the player's ear and saying, thank you. Thank you for, for putting the time in mm. and playing this. Cause I know it's not, it's like a, not an easy thing. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like you've, it's not, it's not a small amount of effort. Mm-hmm. Right. And to just let myself feel that gratitude to the player for, for giving that to me and to say so, and it was transformative for me to record that. And I think in talking to some of the people right and I one of the things in my game is I can sometimes talk to people right after they finish mm-hmm. it. It's like six hours of climbing. They're really kind of, they're, they're, they're relieved uh-huh. more than anything yeah. else. But I can talk to, I can talk to them in a, in a chat room right after they finish. And um, just, just to see how that was kind of, mirrored in their experience as well like how how much uh they they appreciated being told that and it's just it's very interesting to me yeah it's like it's just so interesting that this sort of hasn't been super explored right it reminds me of um when the witcher 3 came out and they all of their physical copies they included a note like from the team and that's a big team right that made that game but they just included this like mm. personal note in all of the physical copies that shipped. And that was like viral. I mean, people were flipping out about that and it wasn't like handwritten or like signed by, I mean, it was still like kind of a, a printed branded thing, but I think just that personal touch just spoke yeah. so many volumes to people um, from, you know, a company yeah. as big as that, let alone down to, if it's just, you know, one person making a game, it just speaks volumes. I actually think the interesting thing about Witcher is how personal it feels to the team. And it's sort of tied up in the fact that it's, it's like the national Witcher books yeah. in, in Poland. Yeah. It's like the national, the national yeah. nerd property, so, right? Like yeah. that's, <laughs> if you're Polish, you, mm-hmm. you have read right. that at least maybe you, and, and probably you love it. And, you know, almost everyone working on that, game is polish and it's in poland and it's sort of roughly set in poland and it's like you just felt like it Mm -hmm. it meant something to be working on that you actually sometimes it's weird to say this but you you sometimes get that from uh early star wars ip games Mm. like the ones that are really recreating the original trilogy it's like this this was a big deal to a significant proportion of Mm -hmm. the people who were working on it to be to be allowed to kind of work in this world and yeah. to kind of produce this, and you can tell, I think, in a in a big in a big mm-hmm. commercial video game, if it if it meant something to most of the people working on it, it really comes through. Yeah, I think it's true in a lot with like a lot of Polish game makers now too, because I think in part because of The Witcher, like game design is exploding in Poland, and uh, like there's all these amazing games coming out of that country. And, uh, and I think a lot of the people that make them are like, kind of remind me a little bit of what you've tried to do with getting over it. Like they're super, take a lot of ownership of, of it. And, um, you know, uh, I think are pretty invested in, 
connecting with the the players on maybe a more personal level, which I think is interesting. Um, I do want to ask you, get, we're almost out of time here. We've talked for uh, about 45 minutes here, but uh, where'd you grow up? Like, I want to hear about you personally. I told you that would be the majority of the podcast that we talked about, like getting over it for 30 minutes. But uh, yeah, where'd you grow up? What was it like? Uh, I grew up in, in Melbourne, Australia. My my parents are not Australian. They were, uh, they were uh, uh, psychology professors. Um, and they got, uh, they went to, to grad school in, in Canada and we're trying to figure out a, a country which they could both agree to to, to yeah. go and get jobs in. So they, my dad's from New Zealand and my mom's from Canada, and they they wound up agreeing on Australia. So uh, so I I grew up uh, in Melbourne, and um, what was it like? I don't know. I mean, what is Australia like? It's kind of uh, hostile to video games. Yeah, actually. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, or I mean, at least it was a very kind of uh, masculine, outdoorsy sort of culture, very sporty uh very very um mm-hmm. rugged culture but you know i was growing up in in a coastal city uh in a, in a sort of middle class suburb and and um i think in a in a way that would be not wildly unfamiliar to most of your your mm-hmm. uh, audience were either of your parents uh were was religion a part of that at all like either your parents did you grow up in a church or anything like that no my my mother is religiously atheist okay <laughs> like like dawkins kind of like that camp yeah but like predating that so you okay. know, there was a kind of wave of of kind of proactive atheism i suppose through the, mm-hmm. the 60s and the 70s like the kind of intellectual uh hippies uh in especially in the academy taking ownership of that and I, maybe dawkins does actually come out of that tradition i suppose that's fair to say but i was raised to tell people i was an atheist <laughs> when they asked yeah I went to a religious uh, high school, like not a not deeply religious, like a Church of England. Um, okay. Uh, in Melbourne. In Melbourne, like a like a private uh, like a private boys' school. As as many yeah. mm. as like most middle class people in 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 uh, in Melbourne do, just particularly because strange. public schools are not are considered to not be very good. Or uh, it's it's you know there's this hor- I mean it's there's this horrible. Um, ongoing thing where uh independent schools have managed to to gain more government funding than the government schools a lot of the time and uh they're they're just a way better resourced which results in better university placements and they have definitely like this kind of weird uh monopoly on university placement so it's it's sort of a weird town from that point of view maybe i don't maybe people in melbourne don't always know how sort of globally unusual that is um Uh i'm in the situation that 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 is sort of religious at least as a result like these are all sort of like schools with it most of them have like at least nominally a a sort of religious uh so do you have like chapel when you were in school like you would go to a chapel service yeah chapel yeah we had a chapel we had church choir there'd be like a there'd be like easter service and so on and your mom was like when you go there you tell them (laughs) yeah you tell them i'm an atheist (laughs) Which I did in in Australia. The, the um, well, I would put it this way instead. I think that that Americans have a different uh, orientation towards atheism than other countries do. Okay, uh, because I'm going to speculate again, speculating wildly. My guess is that because the country was founded by a group of like religious fundamentalists mm-hmm. combined with a group of deists who are essentially atheists, mm-hmm. uh, that religious 
tolerance or like not talking about your religious convictions is sort of deep for all its evangelism and all its mega churches and all, all the kind of religious lobbying in this country. There is like it's sort of baked in. There is a very deep norm of not talking to people about your religious convictions. Right. Right? Yeah. Especially if you don't have any. Uh-huh. Right. It's like the kind of fundamental rules. You do not mention it if you are an atheist. You, you're allowed to say, I'm, ag- I'm an agnostic. I don't have any specific views. And I think that partly because of that strict rule, people who say they're atheists, it's like we, we in America, you as, we associate them with um, very strident people, very uh, combative. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, we lump them all, assholes. lump them in. <laughs> Lump them into the category of like Dawkins or the new atheist crowd that that maybe maybe has that reputation. Right, like a militant. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, I, I guess my mom is is, is actually like that. Um, my dad just doesn't care very much about uh, religion. But I mean, for me, it's not it's not like that. I'm not a I'm not a absence of Bible bashing person. Uh, I I just. I just don't think about it most of the time, mm. but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have any religious beliefs. That is something that I did carry through from my mm-hmm. childhood. And uh, so you never had like a moment where you like go into school, going to chapel or whatever. We were like, okay, my mom's kind of always raised me to be an atheist. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider this. I'm going to rebel against my mom and see if I believe in something and some higher power or something. Did you ever have a moment like that? My sister did that. Um, so I mean I guess it was it was there for me to do if I wanted to, uh, but uh-huh. no, just just never really felt anything that that would have have you know people often talk about yeah I was like raised I knew a lot of people in Australia who were raised as atheists, and uh, I did sometimes talk to people who had gone to a church somewhere or a mosque and and suddenly had like a kind of a flash of inspiration that they they interpret as a as a religious feeling one way or another. And yeah, that just didn't ever happen to me. So I just didn't like didn't have any reason to be experimenting with religion. Mm-hmm. And I was not a very rebellious teenager, so at least not at that stage. So it's just not really been in my experience. Of course, I've always have been surrounded by a certain number of people who are who are religious, who have religious convictions. But just yeah, for me, it's it's just been a sort of a it's just one of those things that just does not really resonate. Mm-hmm. An absence of like belief in God or, or a higher power. It's interesting. Like, so for me, like I, I'm a Christian. Um, so like mm-hmm. a lot of what motivates me to, to do what I do and things are like, I, I, you know, are, are rooted in that. Like I want to, I want to do work that benefits my neighbor and that blesses them and that, that's a real Christian word that helps them in some tangible way, like that makes their world, their life better. And I, 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 it's interesting that I, I sense that from like some of the work that you do, like it's very, it's very pointed. It's very, yeah, it's, it's very, the games you make, I think have an intention, intentionality behind them that I really appreciate. So I'm curious, like what, so it's not God, it's not belief in some sort of higher power. What motivates the work that you do? Is there like a like core beliefs that that drive you? I mean, obviously they're not in God or whatever, but I mean, I was I, you know my my previous gig before I was a full time game designer and professor was I was a professional philosopher, and I you know my training mm-hmm. was in moral philosophy, 
and I, you know, I spent a lot of time reading the various ways that people have tried to understand where our duties to do things come from, yeah. right? It's, it's not like a sort of do as thou wilt kind of uh, vibe. I think there are lots of ways to understand where our motivations come from where and where our, our sort of social duties and our obligations come from as well mm-hmm. that don't necessarily need to have a sort of a theological basis sure you know I, a lot of the a lot of modern moral philosophy comes from originally from uh from philosophers who were christians mm. even they uh you know with some exceptions notable exceptions like uh thomas aquinas and and so on do not really involve religion they don't do, do not appeal to religion that much in in explaining moral duties in in their mm-hmm. work uh, overwhelmingly if looking at mill and Hume and Kant and so on. It's like, you know, God doesn't come into it all that, all that much. They're, they're interested in sort of secular understandings of, of where those things come from, which is just all to say, like, I, you know, I, I think people can give um, a lot of, of, of different explanations for why they do something or why they feel a certain way, why they feel a certain duty or like they need to do something. And they can, a lot of these different explanations can be simultaneously true. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't really believe that, that, uh, secular folks like myself feel that differently when they decide to do something than a, than a religious person does, even though they may use different language to describe it or different frameworks for explaining why it is that they feel that way. I think as, as, as my, my experience of human beings is, is much less that separates religious and non-religious people in terms of their like day-to-day psych- psychology uh, than that. I think we're much, we're, I think we're very sort of fundamentally mm-hmm. the same is, is at least how I, is at least how I understand it. You know, but when it comes to, to art, it's kind of interesting case, right? Because it's not, it's not obvious why people feel driven to make creative artwork. Uh, actually, I got an email some time ago from Stephen Lavelle, the designer of uh, Stephen's Sausage Roll mm-hmm. amongst other games, um, who was, you know, had been, I think, kind of like troubled over this. He was like trying to find, uh, he was asking American friends, I think overwhelmingly American friends, you know, do you know of any philosophy that explains why it's permissible to make art rather than, for example, to go and help people or, you know, like become a doctor or a paramedic or a nurse right, or a teacher or, or a firefighter or something where you've got like some kind of concrete way of helping people. That's a, that's a struggle the church has, I think too. Like, like there's not always a, a, the church isn't always kind to artists these days. Like I think it maybe at one point it was, but these days it can mm. be hard to be an artist in like a, Christian or, or like maybe even more specifically an evangelical church because it's like, well, that might, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's interesting to me because it's actually reasonably new. Mm-hmm. So Stephen, all the people he was talking to were telling him, Oh, only, uh, you can only read Ayn Rand. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. That's the only person who will defend the value of making. It's true that she does, right? It's true that mm. she does. Yeah. But, but in fact, if you go back to all of the classic, uh, the, like the biggest pillars of ancient and modern philosophy going all the way back to like Plato. Most of them talk about art as like something that is just valuable to make. So valuable to other people or valuable in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And very few philosophers are dismissive of that, right? Something that has gone back to the kind of uh, very beginnings of, of organized reflective thought. Um, And I think to most people, 
whether you can express it or not, whether you can find words for it or not, I think we intuitively feel like generating works of uh, of beauty or of conceptual interest or of self expression is is a is a good thing to do. It's 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 a, it's a self justified thing thing to do. It does you don't need to uh, come up with additional justifications for doing it. People like those works of art and people like making them. And it seems like that's enough to, to, to form a justification for doing that right. with your time. Uh, and it's, it's just interesting. And it's, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think there are some kind of very recent uh, uh, religious and cultural traditions of questioning that. And obviously maybe some that are not so recent. I know that, that of course the, um, the Quaker tradition was very, very simple, mm-hmm. uh, uh, furniture and architecture and kind of trying to eliminate uh, uh, sort of um, uh, the, the decorative work that was associated with, with uh, Catholicism and idolatry and, mm-hmm. and all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there, there's been some philosophical back and forth on this, I guess, and the, uh, theological back and forth on it. But overwhelmingly across cultures and across time, I think people have seen value in, in, in art and in sort of constructions of beauty. Uh, mm-hmm. does, I mean, does that does that make sense? You're sort of like so 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 as you know, as a as a person who's making video games, you've got to be like what we construct as being a reasonably trivial form of 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 creative mm-hmm. expression. <laughs> sure. Just doesn't doesn't cross my mind to really worry about whether it's complete waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, should I be helping people? You know, should I be training as a nurse and helping people? Should I be focusing all my efforts on teaching it just doesn't feel like you have to yeah uh but i know that some people feel that as a kind of deeply felt personal conviction and that they can never feel any comfort Mm. uh working in a in a sort of an inward way or indirect way like when you work in philosophy for example like all the impact you'll have on other people is like years, maybe decades, maybe centuries down the track. You really have to have yeah. some faith in, in your yeah. impact. Right. Yeah. Some people can't, some people can't relax into that. They, they, they want to be able to see. That's their, why you quit. <laughs> doing philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's the thing that, that, that's stayed with me out of philosophy. I guess. Oh, yeah. uh, I think that I, I, I have never really felt like I needed to see immediate, uh, like the immediate benefit of what yeah. I was doing. If I, I, I couldn't, I don't think I could be, I couldn't live with myself doing something where I believed mm-hmm. that the overwhelming effects of my actions would be negative. Yeah. Like if I was like a weapons manufacturer sure. or something, I, I couldn't do that. Yeah. It, you know, I think about it too, because like, like as someone who comes from the Christian tradition, I've, I've sort of been raised to like believe in things or like, be committed to things like missions where we're like actually going and, and meeting people's like physical needs and um, helping them have better lives or whatever. And yet I've committed a lot of my life to like studying and thinking about and writing about and talking to people about video games. (laughs) And then it feels sort of like weightless, but, um, and I used to, so I used to always have these arguments with people in the church about, well, you know, video games are more, my, my argument was always like, well, there's more to video games than you think. Like you just, you're thinking Call of Duty and you're thinking, um, I don't know, Mario maybe. And you see those as just sort of like trivial and maybe problematic kind yep. of things. 
Um, and I'm like, no, there's, there's more, there's, there's, there's spec ops the line. <laughs> there's, uh, you know, there's these other games that are more, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other examples, dear Esther or something. I don't know that, you know, they have something to say and they're artistic and they're, and these days, actually, I, I've started, I find myself arguing with the church, trying to prove to people in my own, like, uh, my own camp, as it were, uh, that games are inherently valuable just because of, of being games. Like, like there is inherent value to play and playfulness and, um, and even like, and even fun. Like I find myself trying to make a, th- like I'm actually trying to make, um, I'm writing about this right now. Like just the, the theo- even theo- from a theological standpoint, there's value to, to, um, just setting aside time for this is going to be, we're going to play a game. We're going to enjoy it together. Um, or even by yourself. Um, I think there's just inherent beauty uh, and dignity in being able to, to do those things. Yeah. I mean, I think we're not very good at talking about, we don't have language for all the ways in which we find video games beautiful. And one mm. of the things when you're yeah. playing a game like Mario, I can't, take a person who's never felt this beauty, the beauty of good level design or nice game mechanics Mm -hmm. uh, or a flow state or any of those things that you might like about Mario, right? Yeah. I can't take somebody who has never experienced that and point them at it and make them care about a form of beauty that they've, that they've never encountered. Right. It would be like, you know, if if there was somebody who had never eaten food Mm -hmm. and they want (laughs) to, they want to ban butter and bacon and coffee because those things you know you don't need them you can keep people alive without that <laughs> um and i would have to try to explain to them no people people want those for the kind of beauty of the taste yeah you couldn't explain that to somebody it's like it's like an alien concept yeah, how do you explain bacon to somebody that's right <laughs> <laughs> you can't say anything more than no i mean i i feel a deep beauty in this i i, I take very deep mm. enjoyment from it and I wouldn't want that to be taken away. I would, you know, I, I would, you know, I, I, I can defend my enjoyment of that as something that is a valuable component of the good life. Mm-hmm. And p- part of what makes my life good is my enjoyment of these things or of, of anything. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but yeah, if somebody's never, if somebody's never felt it with a game, it definitely feels like an uphill mm-hmm. battle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating too, I guess, to some extent, cause it's hard to, unless you just let them play, the game because or play some game that sort of distills that for them finally. Um, but I think we have so many, and some of them are like uh, legitimate walls that we have built up to not trust mm. these kind of experiences because we have seen like, like there are, there are problems in the gaming community where people are, um, you know, so invested in the medium itself of, of just like playing mm. games to such an extent that they, that they, they've lost their value for a lot of people. And I think that's what, what a lot of folks hold on to. Um, I think we need to have more conversations about what does it look like to consume, um, consume media in general, but video games in particular in a way that's like, for lack of a better word, like life giving and, and joyful. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a thing that we can draw from games, but I think you're right that there is like a, there are a lot of, the kind of modern practices of, of consuming games, which is to, even just to use that word is kind of a giveaway, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, I, if I'm consuming content, it's like 
that somehow is like a, a way of describing an activity which seems to leave out uh, uh, appreciation of beauty right. or uh, communication yeah. of, uh, of human feeling uh, or of self-expression or human contact or uh, like political realization or any of those sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. It seems to, it seems to leave that, that aside and focus entirely on, uh, I guess, killing time. That's what is what, what you hear when you say our oh, consumers, content consumers, we need more content so people can consume more mm -hmm. content. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, it's kind of soulless in a way. Um, and I'm always a little bit repelled by by the way that those terms have kind of crept into our lexicon, including mine. I mean, it's not like I don't use those terms, but it's it's like it, it's it's sort of worrying how much that becomes a kind of default way of of speaking about these things. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so um, we'll have you write something about that for us then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no, this is fascinating. I feel like we could have a whole another podcast on on this yeah. subject. So, hey, I'm on I'm on a podcast, silly bug. Okay, <laughs> it's almost time. Uh, It'll be five minutes. Okay, all right. Love you. I promised she wants her. To play Minecraft. Yeah, I promised her. She got to play Minecraft for twenty <laughs> minutes before the podcast, and I told her when I was done, she could play another twenty minutes. Um, so she's, she is obsessed now. Like she's only played a couple times and she's already like talking to me about Minecraft. See, those things are evil, man. They'll rot her freaking brain. <laughs> she's already addicted. Yeah. 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 Do you yeah. have a family or kids or anything, Bennett? Uh, I'm, I'm married, uh, wife of, of 10 years. Ooh. Um, but no kids. Yeah. Cool. What does your wife think of your games and what you do? She's not a games person herself. She's uh, she she very much kind of grew up having less than no interest uh -huh. in that. Um, she's she's very good about tolerating it, especially now that it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Probably easier to tolerate yeah, when there's a paycheck associated with it. Well, yeah, exactly. So, but it's 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 been, I think, overall. Um, I, I think that games are a kind of form of popular culture that you can kind of disappear inside of a little bit if if you're not if you don't have anything grounding you in uh, regular people's concerns mm. and regular tastes and and sort of like outside of that nerd sphere. And so, on the one hand, when we were living in Australia and I think to a lesser extent in England, I felt a little cut off from my uh, from my intellectual tribe. Just finding people who were interested in the same things as I was interested in was difficult. Mm. I think that's less true now in Australia, by the way. I think, this, but it was definitely true while I was yeah. there. And um, but on the other hand, yeah, I think that that it's been great to to that my primary relationship is not sort of built inside of that culture right. space. Um, so that I can kind of escape from it. Oh day. yeah. Yeah. I, that makes sense. I can understand that for sure. Yeah. We both, both do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. None of us have gaming spouses. Yeah. Sometimes I wish, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, of course, like there's a part of me that wishes my wife was into all the exact same things that I am just cause I'm selfish, but, right. but it's really a gift. Yeah. I just, I, I, I feel like this is, it's so interesting. I don't know. I was looking at that every now and again. OK Cupid does like a statistics blog post. I find this fascinating. Mm. 
they had like word clouds of what people put in their dating mm-hmm. profiles and they were breaking them down by cultural groups. And it was like white men and women, overwhelmingly all of the big words on their chart are uh, interests and hobbies. Uh-huh. <laughs> like uh, media properties. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't true for, it wasn't true for any other group. And it was so, um, it was, uh, it was such a like, do you remember what the words for the you, other you see, like were? a gross ref- do you Sorry. know what the words for the other groups were? Like there, some people talk about like uh, you know there were some groups who were speaking about um, food, food, dance, uh, um, things like I'm you know, being simple or outdoorsy or uh, into into going out, like those sorts mm-hmm. of things, like really like um, things about your lifestyle, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or as in the you, you should t- you should Google this. It's like really interesting. There's like in the in the for white men and women, it's like a particular movie. Or you know something like that, hmm. and it, you know sometimes when you have like a like a repellent reflection of yourself held up, it makes you like yourself a little bit less. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that, and of course, I don't. You know, I'm not. I can't stand in for every single white person, but I did feel like it's something that's a little bit strange about our shared culture in a way Mm -hmm. that it's so heavily built and focused around our particular peculiar interests. Right. And this is just coming back to the, to the kind of question of what it's like to, to have a a partner who is, um, who is sort of outside your interest bubble, I think is, it's really good. It's really healthy. Uh, But, it's sort of out. It's sort of countercultural, right? Way. Yeah. So, what do you guys you know, like man. to do together? So, it's not games. Uh, so, you know, cooking, TV, uh, listening to music, go out for dinner. We have a lot of uh, kind of food tourism stuff that we do when we travel. Oh, cool. Um, so, you know, it's like you know normal normal human stuff. Yeah. I guess nothing <laughs> nothing to it too uh, too specific. You don't have a media um, property that defines your relationship. <laughs> definitely oh, not. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> if you had to pick a TV show that defines your relationship, what would it be? It's it's, it's interesting because like one of those things where I, I keep on setting up like a separate Netflix profile for her and a separate <laughs> Spotify profile. So she doesn't, she keeps using mine. So I get, it gets sort of infected. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, no, we, 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 the things that we most enjoy together are terrible TV oh, yeah. shows, right? Like, we just watch like every episode of a police procedural. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's just like downtime uh-huh. for me. So, I spend like a lot of time sort of, uh, sort of in, in like a high, uh, high attention state in my work life, whether I'm sort of talking to students or whether I'm programming the sure. computer. Those are things that can take some time to simmer down from. So, uh, so I guess life at home is more like the virtual. Yeah. I need to probably veg more than I do. I always want to watch heady things, and it drives my wife crazy. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, no, that's good. Well, I uh, really appreciate your work, Bennett, and um, appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and. Uh, yeah. There was so much that we didn't get to talk about. Maybe we'll, maybe we should have you on again sometime if you're up for it. Yeah. Sure, I'd be happy to. It's, uh, it's been it's been good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. For me. And uh, so, where where's the best people? What's the best way for people to find your work? 
you can go to Foddy.net, which has a link to just about everything that I've done on it. It's my website or uh, BFOD on Twitter. Yeah. Is also and you can good. play a lot of Bennett's games on Foddy.net, right? You still have... Like you can just jump in and play Quop, right? That's still how that I works. I literally played Quop today yeah, in preparation. And I had totally forgotten <laughs> that if you somehow miraculously manage to get that guy to move, it starts playing the uh, Chariots of Fire song. And I just about peed my yeah. pants from laughter <laughs> when I realized that again today. <laughs> the Quop's going to stay there for a while, but if you want to play the Flash games, it's been okay. very long. It's starting to expire, starting to starting to get to the point where they're not going to work anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. So do that now because some of those may be gone uh, and you'll have to find them somewhere else where you have exactly. to pay for them probably. Um, mm-hmm. And well, but that would be good too because then they would be paying you <laughs> for uh, your honest labor, which okay. is something we're big on. <laughs> um, yeah. So check out Bennett on Twitter and on Foddy.net. And uh, I'm on Twitter as well, DrewDixon82. Chris, have you resurrected your Twitter account yet? I, you can find me there, but it's not going to be very interesting. Okay. So do you want to give people your Twitter handle? Oh, sure. Uh, C-L, <laughs> C.L. Gwaltney, my last name, G-W-A-L-T-N-E-Y. Nice. And uh, be looking for uh, more podcasts from us in the future. We've got some great ones coming up. Um, we uh, What else was I going to say? Go check out our other podcast. It's called Free Play. Yeah. It's the other, the other Love Thy Nerd podcast. It's a lot more conversational than this one. It's a lot more low-key, um, really fun, just They're engaging funnier. hosts. They're funnier than us, um, so go listen to that. Uh, and check out search for love thy nerd on Facebook. If you want to join our Facebook community um, to keep a watch out for our upcoming website and, and all those kinds of things Uh, I'm getting ready to go to PAX East. So be looking for updates from that as well. Um, And, you know, hopefully we'll have a lot of these things up and running soon. So uh, thanks. Go rate and review us on iTunes. That's the last thing I'm going to say. Tweet about the podcast. Um, Put it on Facebook, Snapchat, whatever social media platform you use that no one else does. Put it on there. We would appreciate it. Uh, And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. 